American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Lowell said once that he'd always wanted to write a Civil War poem. It's a question for each of you. Did you, for you, Vijay, today will make that poem mean prose memoir? You know, the thing about that memoir was that uh, I never really wanted to write it even though I knew it was a topic because I always saw the Civil War as being confusing because I got into such detail before I could see the big picture, before I could see the kind of lyric moment that it was or strive toward that lyric moment. And, uh, And when I was writing it, what I found was I was engulfed by the factuality of the war. And there's a tremendous factuality to the war because there's so much, you know, great historical writing about the war. I mean, just, and there's so much fiction about it. It, You know, and the war was memorialized as soon as it ended, you know, at Appomattox Courthouse. The, The officers after Lee and Grant signed the terms of the surrender you know, started taking away all the furniture and stuff like that. So the act of memorial, you know, to keep as relics, so the act of memorialization was sort of, you know, it's almost, you know, it begins, you know, even, you know, begins almost with the war. And so, uh, and I didn't know how to do, I didn't know what to do with all that interpretation that existed and all of those sort of... uh, attitudes towards the war, but, you know, as Frank's poem kind of makes clear, if you really delve into the history of the Civil War, and as, uh, you know, I went back and read a lot of stuff before I wrote the memoir, I sort of felt like, God, this is just about killing, you know? I mean, you know, you almost feel about Whitman, I mean, that, well, when Whitman wrote the epigraph that uh, Kevin uses, he kind of understood death as this sort of transcendental fact, you know, it fit into, but when he went to the Civil War and saw what death really was, it sort of shocked him, and, you know, he was never the poet he was after the war that he was before the war, so uh, I just, you know, it was a subject I just didn't want to get close to at all, simply because it's just all, for me, it's just, an epic of death. I mean, it's just amazing. It's just, I mean, it's just horrifying. It's horrifying. It's, you know, the First World War is, you know. So, no, I never wanted to write a Civil War poem. And <laughs> I never will write a Civil War poem. Uh, I love that. That was good word. Um, I don't know if I wanted to. Um, I think the idea of the memorialization that uh, Vijay mentioned is really was more what I was interested in in some weird way. Um, How do you write about memory or how do you remember a thing that is painful to remember but also, you know, it's a sort of uh, anchor, as I say in the poem. Uh, And quite literally, just in daily life, you pass these giant monuments and you wonder about them. Uh, This was in Athens, Georgia, where there's literally that mural um, in a cafe, um, and um, you know the problem of that, of that, he uncovered this thing, do you cover it back up? It's sort of offensive, but is it history? You know, those kinds of questions came to me as much as um, wanting to write about the war, 
I want to write about the memory of the war and the ways in which it's still happening. Or, um, and I think Frank's poem imagines that so viscerally um, and brings it to life as a present day occurrence. Um, and I think it's the dailiness of it that I want to get at, not the um, you know, um, distant thing. Um, but also, to how do you praise a thing that you're unsure of? That was also, for me, part of the poem. Um, I think, you know, one would like to have something to say about everything important. Uh, but um, uh, I certainly never felt I had anything to say that was uh, some, any, com any insight that was commensurate to um, either the great poems that had been written or, um, or, or the event itself. And um, I loved Lowell's poem. Certainly not my favorite Lowell, but I thought it was a great poem. I do think it's a great poem. Um, I've never liked the Alan Tate poem. Um, uh, um, to me, it's a, it's a poem full of, um, um, uh, ways of avoiding actually confronting um, uh, the the fact of the war and what the war was about, and um, uh, it's what El uh, Adrian Rich would call bullshit rhetoric. A lot of the time, uh, there are great phrases, but then that makes it all the more dangerous and in a way horrible. Um, uh, uh, but I feel very ambivalent about Tate. Uh, his writing altogether. Uh, and it seemed to me amazing and wonderful that Lowell could um, uh, write a poem that, that was not false um, uh, and authentic uh, that partly sprang from uh, the Tate poem. And um, uh, at the same time, as I say, I f didn't feel I had anything commensurate to say. Uh, nor do I f now feel that I have anything commensurate to say, but I had a dream, and it was a dream where I saw these figures. Now, that doesn't necessarily make it a, 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 a proper subject for a poem, but um, I was really quite uh, um, overwhelmed by seeing these figures sort of ripped out of the ground and put on these flatbeds, and, um, and that both sides of the war were, had become the same side. And um, I don't have not dated most of my poems, but 2005, I dated this poem because, it, to my mind, it is really about the world created by the Bush administration and the sense that uh, something catastrophic uh, had happened to America and America's place in the world. Um, and uh, if... <coughs> a state is partly shelter that has been crawled to through blood. Many, many people have suffered and died in order to give us um, uh, the structure that we can be here today uh, and speaking out of. And, and, you know, we don't expect people are going to come in with guns or, uh, uh, and shoot us or stop us from speaking. And all the, all the million things that the ways in which a state can, uh, can provide an order and pattern and security in life. Uh, all that had really been threatened by, I, th I think, the incompetence and stupidity and arrogance and 
and uh, greed of um, the Bush years. And um, so for me, I mean, in a way, the event which this dream gave me was the two sides becoming one. The blue and gray had become one color. And they, they were accusing contemporary America. And I think that theme of the, uh, the past coming back to accuse the present is a very old one, is a very fundamental one. It's in the Lowell poem. Um, but I think it, um, uh, 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 it, it was central to my feeling uh, about the, um, uh, the meaning of that dream. And uh, I tried to build into the poem uh, a sense that the, you know, America has always had this very pragmatic, somewhat cruel side. Um, uh, the lines, uh, assaulted by the impotent dead, I say it's their misfortune and none of my own. Uh, that echoes uh, uh, a song called Get Along Little Dogies where the, the cowboy says to the, uh, to the dogies, who are after all being led off to get fat in order to be sold and slaughtered, it's your misfortune, it's none of my own. And um, uh, so that element of the sort of American past and the American psyche, I wanted also to build into this, this, this figure that America was cutting in the world. You, um, I had a question, do you think Lowell liked Tate's poem? And um, <laughs> good question. Because yeah. I think he's rewriting it to such a degree, and uh, you know the the past that he he's also accusing the past that is Tate, which is his own right. personal uh, right. poetic past. I mean, he's camped on the Tate's backyard, right, in a tent. Right. Um, you know, come sure visit us, and then you have got a kid living in the backyard. Um, that's right. That's right. And um, <clears throat> I think that's there's something really powerful about his uh, engaging that and rewriting, and for me, it was a daunting task to try to write about these uh, sort of two figures. Um, but yeah, the Tate poem, it sounds so different. I mean, hearing him read it, it just, it, I liked it less and less. I, I mean, I, Lowell, I think, was extremely ambivalent about Alan Tate. I mean, he was grateful to Tate. Tate had been um, uh, his teacher. He had learned a lot from Tate. Tate introduced his first book of poems. Um, uh, I think, you know, uh, and, and the rhetoric of Lowell's first trade book, Lord Worry's Castle, was indebted in part to Alan Tate, though I, it was certainly indebted to many more, uh, many other things, and more important things. Uh, on the other hand, I know he felt great ambivalence about Tate, and uh, both as a person and as a writer. And uh, he did not, you know, live his life uh, imitating uh, Tate's work. Or, or his life. Um, uh, I think Tate was in some ways a frightening figure to Lowell. Um, when Lowell wrote the manuscript of Life Studies, um, he sent it to Alan Tate, uh, who had been his friend, and he sent it to T.S. Eliot, who was a friend and had edited his poems for Faber and Faber. And Eliot said, um, this is the real thing. I want to publish it. <laughs> and he did. And then the book, in fact, came out uh, uh, from Favor and Favor before it came out in America. Alan Tate told him to put it in a drawer and try to forget it. And in a couple of years, he would be ashamed of it. 
so uh, you know, I th I think he had a lot of ambivalence about <laughs> about Tate. Yeah, right. I wonder why. Is it safe to say that was mutual? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I I know. I mean, for example, late in Lowell's life, uh, when he, he was working on the sonnet books, he wrote uh, uh, some sonnets about Tate and about the death of uh, 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 one of the um, twins. Uh, that uh, Tate had uh, had had, and um, I think there, well, the the image of Tate in the poems is uh, is mixed, but it is certainly not in any simple way an attack on him. But Tate was tremendously upset that Lowell presumed to write a poem about the death of Tate's child, and. When I read the poem, I, it does not seem to me a transgression. Um, uh, and um, uh, but Tate was very proprietary, and it, and that somehow it was an indiscretion of Lowell to write about uh, the death of this child, which was an accident. So, um, in it, <coughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, I think their relations were rocky. Uh, I know that. He came around about life studies. He, he ended up writing, it's a magnificent book, maybe giving in, you know. And I, th I think that he, he, was very, he was very worried about what it meant. I, th I think he, he read the book and thought, crazy, you know, so I think that was part of it. Kevin, you said that in, in your poem you're arguing with history and with poetry. And, you know, something that is unique about the, the group of you is that all of you are looking back to Lowell and or Tate. We see it subtly in uh, Vijay's prose memoir. Vijay, you put a prose memoir in the middle of a book of poems, as, as Lowell did. Well, I would, you know, I knew that everybody who read the book and knew the Lowell book were, was going to, they were all going to immediately remember life studies. But, you know, the impetus, you know, I, I don't know when I first read Life Studies, but I'm pretty sure I read The Sea in the Mirror by W.H. Auden before I left, read Life Studies. And I think that's where Lowell got the idea of putting a section of prose in a book of poetry. And I love the texture of The Sea in the Mirror, so it was always in my mind because of that. You know, writing that book really involved, from, or writing that prose memoir really involved the way in which Lowell was involved was this, that somehow I've always been very sympathetic to the father in 91 Revere Street, you know, because he is so deconstructed in some way, you know. I mean, he is just taken apart step by step, you know. And of course, it's a masterpiece of American prose, but, you know, I always come away feeling like, you know, gosh, you know, he should be a little nicer to his dad. And, you know, and, I, you know, and in some sense, that was the one impetus. It, you know, to the extent that it's about fathers, it, you know, to the extent that the rhetorical texture was something that I appropriated from Auden, not from uh, Lowell. But what I got from Lowell was a desire to do something for my father that would kind of, you know, make him sort of heroic rather than take away those elements. Because, of course, you remember Lowell's father is a military man, 
you know. And he's sort of, the, the long arc of that memoir has to do with his being demilitarized in some way, you know, and, and, and it's a process of emasculation that's gone into in great, great, exquisite detail. And, uh, you know, and I think that was sort of the impulse. And in relationship to the Civil War, I mean, what really comes back to me about the Civil War, and when I was thinking about this coming down here on the train, I felt like, God, you know, it's sort of an eruption of the existential situation into history. You know, it can't really be contained by ideas of the Republic because it in and of itself, and I think that is something that my father understood about the, that war, that it was so big and huge and, and all our responses to it are gonna be incommensurate. You know, I mean, I think Lowell really comes close to doing something, you know, I mean, and, but in relationship to what actually happened, what was actually going on, you know, on the battlefield, if we could ever reconstruct it in our minds, I mean, we are gonna to be totally horrified. I mean, it's just a horrifying, you know. So, you know, the fact that, you know, at a certain point in the unfolding of violence itself, you know, the individual has to come to recognize. You know, I mean, for me, the real, you know, I mean, there are lots of great Southern texts about the war, and the South has a wonderful literature about the war. You know, the Northern text that really means a lot to me is, of course, the Red Badge of Courage. You know, and of course, Henry is completely confused in the Red Badge of Courage, if you remember it. And he, he runs away from the battle at the beginning. And then in the process of the book, he runs towards the battle and he becomes a soldier, you know. But everything that's happening around him is confused and there's no historicity to it. You don't really know what battle it is, you know. And uh, you don't really have a sense of people moving in historical space, but people moving in a kind of existential space, you know. And, and Crane's poetry is like that too. He's a wonderful poet, you know. And, uh, so that was sort of what I was thinking of in relationship to sort of all of the different ways you could approach it, you know, and, uh, yeah. and I guess it's, in a sense, it's sort of what both of the poems that Frank and, and Kevin read are doing, too. They're kind of existentializing something historical. You know what I mean? Or am I going to? Uh, quickly, um, for me, um, I guess what I took from Lowell and... Uh, it's interesting you talk about existentializing. I think of it as that mix of the personal and the public history that Lowell does so well in um, that poem. And I frankly love Notebook, his uh, sequence that I think imagines uh, that so well. And um, that's one of my favorite books of his um, because it is that mix, which I think is um, particular and peculiar. But I also wouldn't want us to forget that he's writing about seeing the Negro faces on the television rise like balloons. He's writing about another historical moment that is directly related to the Civil War and directly related to the Civil Rights Movement, and he's watching. And so there's this beautiful, to me, it's an honest poem about putting your nose to the glass and not seeing and also seeing, you know, and not being able to do something, but also I, that to me is so powerful in the poem, and it's so honest. Um, a poet I admire and have edited, John Berryman, for instance, wrote terribly about 
race in the same period and, you know, thought because he sort of used one form of sort of dialect and got away with it, he could write really bad poems about race, you know. Um, and so I, I think we can't forget that. And obviously, as an African-American poet sitting down the, to write this poem, there was a... Lowell was an example to be able to write about this complex thing and in a personal way. And also, I have his middle name, I guess, so it was it seemed like lurking there. Um, but I, I, I guess I would hate to think that we're talking about the past only because Lowell is not to me, and that's what's powerful about that poem. And as I recall, he read it at I don't remember where he first read it. Public Garden, 1960. Yeah, and that public quality of the poem, too, I think is really important to the poem's, um, you know, vector, I mean, where it's going. And I, I guess, you know, to try to write a kind of short epic poem, <laughs> which is what it feels like, and you read it so well, uh, honestly, I was just, it was amazing to hear you read it because you got that sense of gravitas that he brings to the page. And, um, you know, I think the war deserves that, but I don't think it's impossible to write about it. I, I think it's necessary. Let me say, I, when I introduced the poem, I meant to mention that it was written just a couple of years after Little Rock. And, uh, and so, you know, those, the, the drained faces of Negro school children, he's talking about something the whole country had just experienced. And, and which is also to say that all the issues about the war were not over, you know. The monument sticks like a fishbone in the city's throat. In a way, that's almost the central lines in the... Uh, in the poem, and uh, it's a fishbone that's not out. Uh, it's not out, it's still not out uh, in, in this country. Um. It strikes me that, that all these are public texts and in some way you know, very personal at the same time. And um, it, it, it seems to me that it, it may be that the war has given you an opportunity to talk about your own Americanness. And I wonder if, Kevin, you say something about that first. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's right. Um, it's hard to name it, I guess. I, I think the poem tries different ways of naming that. The movie, the scene, uh, the idea of seeing things, or I, I think it's seed instead of scene. Um, the spoken quality of the language um, that I think Lowell engages. And, and I think there's a way that Tate almost does that interests me, especially in those little um, couplets. That's what the part I love in that poem. I wish there were just little couplets, but um, anyway. Uh, so for me, there was exactly that Americanness. Um, but the other thing is an, ambigu am an ambiguity about that whole process and where does one belong and what's the name of the damn war? Is it the war between the states, southern independence? You know, there's too many names and I think that idea of naming it was in there and what I love about Lowell's poem is that ambiguity at the end, the savage servility, which is not so ambiguous but it, it, isn't, it hasn't decided where we're going yet. Well, uh, I don't read enough and um, uh, I have to admit, I had never read either Kevin's poem or Vijay's uh, uh, piece before uh, I prepared for this. And I have to say, I was amazed. Um, uh, for me, the, uh, the guts of being able to write a poem uh, called For the Confederate Dead was just astonishing. Uh, 
And the fact that he carries it off, um, I particularly love these lines, in my movie, there are no horses, no heroes, only draftees fleeing into the pines, some few who survive, gravely wounded, lying burrowed beneath the dead, silent until the enemy bayonets what is believed to be the last of the breathing. And that's really taking on the violence, the fact, the materiality of, uh, of the war and absorbing it into the one's own writing. It's just quite terrific. Um, and when I read Vijay's uh, piece, I, I have to say, I kept thinking, I've never written anything this good about my father. <laughs> um, it's really amazing, um, uh, really quite profound. Um, so it's been an honor, been a pleasure to be on part Sweet. of this. Let's take a question. Go ahead. Thank, thank you all. I'm, I was really excited for this panel to be part of the program. I wouldn't want us to miss the greater moment in which we are, uh, on, which we, uh, on the cusp of which we are, uh, which is that we are about to enter into four years of remembering this civil war during the time when we will have a national election on our first African-American president and, uh, and in which some very right-wing reactionary political groups are already preparing the message for how America will understand the Civil War 150 years later. And so and, and my concern is I don't see enough of uh, the, the, the liberal arts stepping in to help shape that message. And I think the way that you framed it, perhaps, how does reflecting on the war give you a chance to talk about your Americanness? is a very good way that we can step publicly into the conversation that is just about to happen and perhaps help lead a conversation that is one that heals rather than one that is bent on, on a deeper fracture, than the, a deeper fracture of good order than we are already experiencing. Yes. So that I just really want to encourage it because I think it is about to blow apart. And if we don't step up publicly with some sort of conversation about what the Civil War means now, we are going to be seeing much greater violence than we are already experiencing along rural and urban and uh, north and south and white and non-white lines. I would love for any of you to talk about definitely has something to say about this. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think, okay, there is the unionist response, right, a more perfect union, and then, then there is the Fis of Paris tendency of America, which was first fully enacted in the Civil War and is continuing now, and has kind of returned, you know? You know, the ghosts of the past definitely have come back. You know, and one part of me feels that, well, if you are kind of thinking about a more perfect union as represented by the Obama presidency, for example, or progressive ideas, or kind of legislation that we all live under, like Roe versus Wade, yeah, and, uh, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're gonna sort of enact in some way or another now again the same historical circumstances, which we are enacting. I mean, 
this is so much about states' rights, right? The Tea Party and all of that stuff, and Arizona, and now they're trying to pass a law in Arizona that will allow people to bring guns on campus, you know? Yeah, think what would happen if Sarah Lawrence if they did that. I'm like, I'm terrified, you know? I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm going, oh my God, you know? But you know, but I think the issue is, well, this is America. It is schizoid in this way, you know? And that's what's interesting to me, you know? I wanna, like other people say, well, we gotta fight, and I always say, God, but it's so interesting, this. It's so long, it's enduring, it's the character of the country, and the republic is a schizoid republic, and it will always be that way. And isn't it hopeless to try to integrate and unify it? I mean, is it, would it ever be possible? So I mean, anti-integration, is that what you're well, saying? Well, no, I'm, you know. <laughs> You heard it here. Pro-segregation, this guy. No, in the Kleinian sense. I know, I'm, I'm talking about, you. you know, I'm not talking, you know. Go ahead. Uh, my question is for Mr. Young about um, just how the Civil War fits into being an example of uh, sort of homicidal wistfulness <laughs> and, and, and being a, the problem of nostalgia yeah. and how that relates to when you're making a poem and how personal nostalgia influences that and kind of when you're connecting the personal with the historical, what sort of the uh, moral, the moral importance of that is or what you think about that. That's a great question about nostalgia and history and what your moral responsibility is. Um, I mean, I think nostalgia is such a powerful engine, you know. Um, I've been recently writing about soul music and that idea. but. Um, you know, I think that uh, one has to be a little careful, but it's such a powerful both impulse in the South, I think, you know, it's very uh, much something that drives Southern public talking about it, um, or any country song you've ever heard that's on the radio right now. Um, but also it's something personal you have to wrestle with, and I, I guess I see nostalgia sometimes as fighting against history and as a useful way, and then sometimes as a form of history, um, retelling it in a new way. So. Um, it's a big question I can't quite answer in the time allotted, but I think it's a great idea question. I think that's the time that we've got. Thank you all for coming, Thanks and thank you all so much.